Welcome to today's message from First Baptist Church in Divine, Texas, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. You can find today's message and more information at www.fbcdivine.org. Now, let's listen to the latest teaching from First Baptist Church, Divine. The Word of God reads, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is, it not, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me the, this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things... All in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of God for the people of God this Sunday morning. There was once a man who appeared before the, the pearly gates of heaven, and he was greeted by One thing, there was this one time that I walked up on a gang of high testosterone bikers who were giving a, a, a hard time and were threatening a young woman. And I asked them to leave her alone, but they wouldn't listen. So I decided the best thing to do was to approach the largest one of them, the one who had the most tattoos, and talk to him. And after I talked to him, I smacked him upside the head, I kicked his motorcycle over, I ripped out his nose ring and I threw it on the ground and I told him, you leave her alone or you're going to have to answer to me. Well, the clerk at the gate of heaven was just thoroughly impressed by this and is taking the notes in the system fervishly. 
And he says, well, tell me, just for the records, when was this? And the guy said, just a couple of minutes ago. Well, that might be an extreme way of making the point that what you say can get you into all sorts of trouble. And today we're going to see what the Lord Jesus said in his home synagogue almost got him thrown over a cliff. But what Jesus said was not an accident. He intended to say what he said. And this morning, I would like for us to give ourselves permission to be a bunch of back row Baptists in the back of this Nazareth synagogue, transporting in time to come witness Jesus in his home church. And in so doing, I want us to notice a a number of things as we take up our back row. The first of which is the setting, the setting of this whole thing. Now, According to the Jewish historian Josephus, Nazareth was a really busy city that had almost 20,000 people in it at this time. And it had the rough and tough character of a military town because it was placed alongside a, a crossing of two important highways, both of which were used by the Roman army. Now we know, as good Bible students, that Jerusalem was the holy city. But in contrast... Nazareth was anything but holy. It was anything but holy because a lot of Nazareth was filled with these non-Jewish people known as Gentiles. And after the baptism and the temptation of Jesus, Jesus is traveling around the other areas of Galilee and he's preaching and he's even performing miracles. And most of the folks in his hometown of Nazareth, they'd already heard the story of how Jesus had turned water into wine at a wedding feast 10 miles down the road in a place called Cana. There was even scattered reports of this Jesus of Nazareth performing miraculous healings. And this Jesus of Nazareth had become a hot topic of conversation all over the region. And now, on this particular Sabbath, There's a whisper amongst the crowd in this church, if you will, as they assembled at the synagogue. You can imagine it as we're watching from the back row. Look, there he is. That's Jesus. Look, it's him. He's here today. Now, what you may not know is that as part of worship, a man in the congregation would be invited to come and read from the Torah and then sit and make remarks upon that which he read from one of the first five books of the Bible. And after this, a man would then, a different man would be invited to read from the prophets, and then sit down and make remarks upon that which he read as well. So we come to the time of reading from the prophets, and Jesus is invited to come read. And he's handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus carefully unrolls the scroll from back to front, until he found the passage to read. And before we leave the setting to move on to what else we're observing, there's something that I want us uh, to note that is of importance right now. The thing I want us to note is that it was the weekly custom of Jesus to gather with others to worship God. It was part of the regular weekly custom of Jesus to worship every Sabbath in a synagogue. Now, you can be certain that there were many other things that were going on at the synagogue that Jesus did not agree with. In fact, there might have been some things that really graded Jesus' sense of spiritual perfection. Yet he still went 
every Sabbath. Oh, the synagogue was far from perfect, yet Jesus did not excuse himself from worshiping with God's people on God's day. If there was ever anyone who really didn't need to go to church, it's Jesus. I mean, after all, he's God in the flesh, right? We know he communed with his heavenly father on a continual basis. But when the Sabbath rolled around, where was he? He was at church. You see the lesson? If the Son of God took time every week to gather with others to worship, we should as well. I ought to be looking in the camera up there right now, inviting y'all to come now uh, and quit doing the at-home thing. Even if you're not 100% pleased with what goes on in your church, you should never get out of the good habit of worshiping with God's people. I mean, some people think that you can worship God out on a lake or out at the golf course. Now, don't get me wrong. You can worship God anywhere, but the primary reason that a person goes to a golf course on Sunday morning is not to worship the Lord, even though they might be saying the Lord's name a few times as they put that ball around on the course, right? The, the main reason a person goes to the lake on Sunday morning is not to worship. No, their main interest might be fishing or skiing or swimming. But my friend, when you come to church, the main reason you are here is to worship the living God. Yes, you'll have fun, you'll, you'll fellowship, you'll have friendship, but the main reason you come is to meet God in worship. We should not miss this important lesson from Jesus. So that's the setting. The next thing we should notice is the text. The text. The text that Jesus chose to read is found in what you and I know as Isaiah chapter 61. Of course, in that time, the Old Testament wasn't divided into chapters and verses, so he had to unroll the scroll to find the exact place where the words that he read were written. And Jesus used these words to explain his mission. And my friend, if we were to study this, we can gain a clearer understanding of the reason why Jesus came to the planet Earth. We've read several times as we've read through Luke that Jesus was filled with the Spirit or that Jesus was led by the Spirit. And here Luke tells us in verse 14 that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And Jesus begins reading from Isaiah and he proclaims that the Messiah will be the one upon whom the Spirit of the living God rests. Then we see what we would call a job description of the Messiah. We find that Jesus came to proclaim this good news to the weak. To the weak. The word weak or to the word poor literally means someone who is not able to care for himself. A better rendering would be the word needy here, okay? Carrying the sense of being weak. Throughout his ministry, Jesus stressed that like a great physician, that he did not come for the well. No, he came for the sick. And here's the point. We're all sick. We're all sick. Some of us just don't realize it. See, Jesus came to announce good news to the weak. And my friend, that is the general task of the Messiah. And then we see four specific areas in which he would help needy people. The first of which is offering freedom for those in bondage or offering freedom to those who are enslaved. 
Now, during this time in history, there were some actual slaves, but Jesus is also speaking of a different kind or another kind of servitude or bondage. We find in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, Paul writing to his understudy that Satan has captured many people to do his will. See, Jesus came to set people free from all kinds of slavery, all kinds of bondage. Many people in Israel expected when the Messiah came that he was going to raise an army and that army would rebel against the Roman Empire and that army would once again make Israel a free and independent nation. And Jesus spoke about a different kind of liberty and freedom, though. Well, what kind? Freedom and liberty that you find described if you're reading in John chapter 8, verse 32, where Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. And then he goes on to say, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Some of you who are listening right now are in bondage to certain sins and attitudes. And there are numbers in which I might mention, I might allude to. You might be a slave to gossiping. And we can't see the chains, but we're entrapped by some terrible addiction from which it seems none of us can escape. But Jesus has the key. In fact, my friend, Jesus is the key from which your chains can be broken. The question is, will you receive the freedom in which he provides? The second thing I want us to notice is that Jesus and the the job description of the Messiah is to bring sight to the blind. See, Jesus actually healed many people who were physically blind, but he didn't heal every last person who was physically blind in, in Israel. He had the power to do that, but we also know that Jesus had a greater power, has a greater power. Jesus has the greater power to deliver every last person from their spiritual blindness. Until a person comes to know Jesus in a personal way, they're blind. Oh yes, they can see the colors of this room, but they are absolutely blind to the gospel and to the Savior. Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 as he tells that church in Corinth, In their case, the God of this world, being the evil one, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There was once a professor who was a skeptic. He didn't believe. Now, by all accounts, he was a really nice guy. And he'd be happy to converse with you and explain to you about his reason for a lack of belief. He considered the Bible to only be a collection of stories, really good stories even. It's recounted that he would say, you know, I can't see what Christians say that they see in Jesus and what they see in the Bible. And what he didn't understand is that he was exactly right. He was exactly right because the Bible itself says that you can't see it on your own. See, the professor's problem is that he's blind. And I nor anyone else can diagnose him with blindness. But because the word of God diagnoses him with blindness, we know that he is blind to the truth of the gospel of the glory of Christ. See, every unbeliever is blind to the truth of the gospel. And an unbeliever will say, I believe, I'll believe it when I see it. But that's absolutely contradictory to what we find that I describe as Bible faith. 
It's Bible faith that says, I'll see it when I believe it. I hope you see the difference there. See, Jesus came to open the blinded eyes and the blinded minds of unbelievers. And my friend, he's still doing that today. The third thing I want us to see from this job description of the Messiah is that the Messiah will come for the restoration of the broken. Look at the last word in verse 18. We find in there the word oppressed, which literally means to be bruised or broken. And in the original language, it means to be broken into pieces. It would, would, would have been a word that would have been used if, if someone were to slam a piece of pottery on the ground and find all its shattered pieces over the floor. My friend, Jesus came to repair shattered lives. He came to repair broken hearts. The full text of Isaiah chapter 61 says, the Messiah, the anointed one, would come to heal the brokenhearted. In Bible times, a potter would often repair broken vessels by adding, adding a natural adhesive to each of the broken pieces and setting them together, taking the parts and reassembling them into one. To me, that's an absolutely beautiful picture to see Jesus repairing broken hearts the same way. See, he can take the pieces of your broken heart and he can take and use the glue of the love of God to restore that broken heart. The Bible says about the Lord in Psalm 147, verse 3, that he, the Lord, heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Have you ever suffered from a broken heart? Some of you may be hurting from a broken heart right now. Right now at this very moment. And for all the medical advancements, no doctor, no procedure can repair a broken heart. And maybe you've been rejected. Maybe a, a spouse has left you for another person. Maybe you've suffered discouragement and disappointment. Perhaps your heart is broken because you know you failed the Lord in some way. There's a million different experiences that can break your heart. And today Jesus stands ready to do what he said he came to do. That's to heal your broken heart, my friend. Yet in order for him to do that, you've got to hand him all the pieces. You cannot hold back and keep some pieces for yourself if you want the Lord to heal your heart. You've got to bring them all to him and give them to him. And you will find that he will heal them. Now here's the other side of this. Some of you know that if a broken bone is not reset properly, you're going to suffer from pain for years until that bone is rebroken and properly reset so that it can properly heal. Some of you today have suffered from a broken heart many years ago, and you didn't have it properly repaired. You ignored it. You bared it down. You acted like it wasn't going to be real. You thought you could just distract yourself with the next and the next and the next, and that it'd just be water under the bridge. Yet you're still hurting. Every day when you wake up, some reminder that brings it, triggers it. It might have even been years ago. But that pain comes right back. My friend, the great physician is in today and his specialty is fixing broken hearts. Why don't you let him? The fourth thing of the job description of, the God, of God's Messiah is to announce that this is the age of God's grace. In verse 19, Jesus said he came to announce the year of God's favor. 
That doesn't mean that from the day that he read, uh, from in the, the day that he was in that synagogue, that for 365 days from then, that only for the next 365 days, come get it now if you want God's favor and mercy. The word year means a specific time period that, was, that had a beginning and an ending. See, Jesus is referring to the dawning of an age of grace that is opposed to the Old Testament age of the law. In fact, right now, we're living in this age of grace that I'm speaking of. It began with Jesus' first coming, and it concludes with his second coming. If you're, it's also interesting to note uh, from what Jesus is reading in Isaiah chapter 61, if we were reading that right now, we would find that Jesus has abruptly stopped in the middle of a sentence from what the prophet Isaiah was led by the Spirit to record. And if you took the time to read it, you'll see that the, the, the phrase that follows the one about the year of God's favor says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Why do you think Jesus didn't finish that? Well, because there's a mystery about his coming. Namely, the mystery is the fact that his coming is a two-act drama. See, the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, they saw the drama as a whole, and they didn't separate the two acts by centuries. They anticipated salvation and judgment being together. And the year of liberation and the day of vengeance were all one. Jesus stopped in mid-sentence because he was announcing the purpose of his first coming. He came first, the first time to preach the good news of God's grace. He announced that he was coming to save. That's act one. But at his, at his second coming, Jesus will arrive as the judge who will execute vengeance on sinners. That's act two. He didn't read the next phrase because he knew something that Isaiah didn't have revelation from God about. He understood that there would be time between the first coming and his second coming. And right now we're living in this age of grace. And my friend, God is extending the offer of salvation to you this morning. And it is a free gift for right now. And I want us to note something here. This is outlining the mission, the purpose of the Messiah. My friend, the mission of Jesus should also be the mission of the body of Christ. See, during this age of grace, we should be doing the same thing that Jesus did. His message of good news should be our message. And sometimes churches forget that man's greatest need is spiritual. See, it's, I say that in the knowledge that it's important for us to help the poor with money. It's important for us to assist the blind with medicine and to feed the hungry with food. It's important for us to, uh, to pay attention to the physical and material needs of people. All of that's important. But it's far more important for us to minister to those who are spiritually blind and spiritually bound. See, the church is the only representative of Jesus left on earth. And this is where you ought to be able to come to find healing for your broken hearts. It's Pastor John Piper who said this of this subject. He said, Let it be declared unashamedly and reasonably that the greatest and most loving thing that we, speaking of the church, can do for anyone is release them from the captivity of sin, to heal them from the blindness of unbelief, and to set them at liberty from the oppression of Satan. 
It goes on to say that efforts at social improvement that neglect this great spiritual goal will be looked back on by poor people in hell as a horrible form of malpractice. So that's the text that Jesus used for his homecoming sermon. You read it? Then he handed back the scroll back to the synagogue attendant and he sat down. And in the synagogue, the reader of Scripture always stood to read the Word of God out of reverence for it. And then he would sit down for his teaching. So next I want us to look at the message that Jesus preached. When you look at this sermon, you'll find that it's true to form like we're taught to preach. It has three points and even uses some Old Testament illustrations to support them. And I want us to work through these three points very briefly. The first point that Jesus announces in this sermon, he says, I'm the Messiah. See, he has the boldness to say from this scripture in Isaiah chapter 61 that what was prophesied was was fulfilled today in the midst of these people who were congregating and and were audience to his reading. And my friend, that was an audacious claim for Joseph and Mary's boy. Now I'll tell you, the listeners didn't get upset by what he said. Instead, they were pleased by his gracious words. We're still in the back row right now. Imagine, can't you hear somebody saying, Amen, brother, preach it. While others are whispering, I thought this was Joseph's boy. He's preaching this. This is cool. The reason they didn't get too upset is because there was a tremendous, tremendous sense of for the expectation for the Messiah to reveal himself. And the Jews in Nazareth thought the main role of Messiah would be to deliver the Jews. So rather than being skeptical upon the announcement that the prophecy had been fulfilled at the reading, they were hopeful. They were in awe. But Jesus hadn't started preaching yet. He was just making an observation about himself. You see, he could have continued talking about himself and they would have continued to say amen. See, preaching that only uses non-offensive generalizations, that is safe preaching. You may not know this, but preaching can become dangerous when the preacher has the guts to use a three-letter word that's spelled Y-O-U. And as long as the preacher talks about himself or the preacher talks about others who aren't present, his audience is happy. That's what a lot of preaching is today, by the way. A mild-mannered man standing up in front of mild-mannered people, suggesting that they all become more mild-mannered. It was the evangelist Leonard Ravenhill who used to lament what he called preacherettes who preached sermonettes to Christianettes who smoked cigarettes. See, Jesus is about to shock them here with this message. If you look at verse 23, you find that Jesus begins to use that Y word, you. He says, you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And the point of this statement is, he's telling them, you're sick. And I'm going to tell you that that you're spiritually sick. And I'm going to tell you, you're not going to believe me. I'm also going to tell you, you're not going to like it. But he wanted them to know that he wasn't coming there just to do some heavenly magic tricks like they might demand. He's basically saying, if that's what you want, I ain't going to do it. And now what he's saying is, you're sick people. And I'm not going to let you use me as your puppet, even if I'm from your hometown. And suddenly, 
the amen stop? No, in fact, the words are met with, sh- the, with a shocked and stony silence. Oh, by this point, there's probably steam that's coming out of the collar of some of the prideful men in the congregation. But Jesus wasn't finished yet. He continued his message with a point that really made them mad. He said, just because you're hometown Jews, don't expect any home cooking from God. Don't expect any special favors from God. Now, well, this is what we see when Jesus begins to say, or observe a spiritual principle about the fact that no prophet is expect, or accepted in his hometown. Well, by now, the little ladies who cared, kept him in the synagogue nursery, they're probably grinding their teeth. Oh, I changed his diaper, and now look at him. The men who taught his Sunday school class may have been regretting that they even let the young man speak. He admitted he expected to be rejected by them. All because God didn't restrict his grace and mercy to the Jews only. And Jesus supports this point by sharing two Old Testament illustrations that made his audience just livid with anger. See, first he reminded them that when Elijah was around, a prophet from the the years before, that God had completely bypassed the thousands of widows in Israel and showered favor upon a Gentile widow in a town called Sidon. God supernaturally extended her supply of grain and oil until a a long-lasting famine had passed. God did this for a Gentile woman, but he didn't do it for any single Jewish woman at all, or any uh, Jewish widow at all. What's the point? If the Jews in Nazareth thought that God owed them some special favors, think again. See, God often shows mercy and grace to those who you and I might otherwise think seem least qualified. Now, you need to know that, that Jews really hated the Gentiles in this day and age. In fact, a few years before, before Jesus, there's a famous Jewish rabbi who's recorded as stating, God only created the Gentiles so they can be the fuel for hell. Can you imagine that? And the Jews in Nazareth were terribly offended that Jesus would even mention God's mercy and grace and in the same conversation apply it to the despicable Gentiles. And then comes the second illustration that just drove the, the point deeper into their anger. He reminded them that after Elijah came another prophet named Elisha. And instead of choosing to heal some Israelite who had leprosy, God chose instead to heal a pagan Syrian man. And not just any pagan Syrian Gentile, but the guy who was the leader of the Syrian army who was leading the horde to slaughter Jewish people. And the prophet told Naaman to dip himself seven times in the River Jordan. And at first, Naaman, he's not happy with any of this. I mean, he's thinking back to all the more beautiful rivers that he had back home in Syria that were near Damascus. But finally, Naaman agreed to believe God's word. And he dips himself, and he dips himself, and he dips himself, and he gets to dip number six, and nothing's changed. And on the seventh time, comes up clean. In fact, in seven times, when he comes up clean, the Bible even says that his skin was as soft as that of a newborn baby. And by the way, if he had just stopped at dip number six, Naaman would have died of leprosy. And here's the thing. 
Some of you may have almost obeyed God, but you haven't fully obeyed God. You've done, no, just about six-sevenths of what God has commanded you, and you stopped. And you wonder why there's still no change in your life. My friend, you and I have a lesson to learn from Naaman. See, it doesn't make any sense, but God seldom conforms to our sense of what's right or what's fair. And I thank God that he's not fair on our terms of being fair. In fact, there is something we need to learn about this message today. That God has the right to show mercy upon whomever he chooses to show mercy. Even those that we think do not qualify. See, sometimes we hear about the drug-addicted rock star who finds Jesus, and our first response is skepticism. Kanye found Jesus? What? Come on. Or we hear some, of some wicked prostitute who accepts Christ, and we think, well, you know, that's okay. Just as long as she doesn't come to First Baptist Church Divine. Or here's some stinking homeless person who accepts God's free gift of salvation. And we think, well, if, if he comes here, that's fine. But sister, watch your purse. Where did we ever get the idea that God can only save nice, clean, respectable, prosperous people? Well, I know you'd never admit that out loud, would you? You wouldn't admit it out loud. But when someone comes into your class or our church you might accept them because they're your kind of people. But when someone comes into your class or our church who isn't your kind of people, you look at them and you think, man, our, our welcoming team missed it today. How'd they get past the security? My friend, God forbid that we ever ignore any person who needs Jesus. God forbid. As the church... As the body of Christ, we must reach out and we must minister to the hurting. We must reach out and we must minister to the stinking, to the strange, to the addict, to the drunkard, to the pervert, to the abuser, to the thief, to the liar. Why? Because you look to every one of those examples of human misery that you can find and you can say nothing but there before the grace of God, that's me. Be honest. Be honest with yourself. Reach sick. There before the grace of God, that's me. See, my friend, you ought to open your arms to anyone who, received, who receives God's grace. And my friend, if you don't, you are guilty of the same spiritual pride that infected the people in the synagogue in Nazareth. And here's the thing. After Jesus preached his brief message, we notice an invitation. And he tried to get there. Before Jesus could even finish his sermon and give the invitation, the people came forward. Ooh, that's one kind of service, right? When they're already walking down the aisle before the preacher says amen. You can start saying, ooh, this is revival. Not that day. People came forward all right, but they didn't come forward to join the synagogue. They didn't come forward to pray. They didn't come forward to tell Jesus, you know, brother, that was a great sermon that you preached today. Thank you. They didn't come to say that at all. 
Instead, these people were so infuriated that they rushed forward and it says that they drove him out of the synagogue and even out of the town. And the word drove, it's a picture of a man who's driving a herd of oxen, yelling and whipping them. And the Jewish synagogue turned into an angry uh, mob as they yelled and they spit and they screamed and they pummeled Jesus with their fists. They didn't like the message. So they decided they were going to kill the messenger. Now, you may not know this, but Nazareth is built on a tall ledge. And it's clear from this word that where the angry mob drove Jesus was to that very ledge. And according to their law, what Jesus had proclaimed was blasphemy. And because of that, he deserved to die. And they weren't going to scare him. They weren't going to warn him. No, they intended to kill him. Now, we're, now we have followed the mob out. We're still in the back row just watching. You can picture Jesus standing with his heels on this cliff, can't you? On the other side of him is this angry mob. Behind him is this sheer drop that's 300 feet all the way down to some jagged rocks below. But then we come to verse 30. And my friend, I just love verse 30. I can't explain it. It says he walked through the crowd and went on his way. Every time I read it, I'm like, whoa, what happened? Was there like some kung fu and he like karate chopped and kicked his way out of the crowd? I don't know. Did he just negotiate with them and say, you know, I didn't really mean what I said, y'all, and get his way out of trouble? No, he didn't do that. He didn't do that. Well, the Bible doesn't say exactly what happened, but my friend, this is a miracle. When an angry mob is trying to kill a guy, it doesn't just ordinarily uh, open up so the guy can walk right through the middle. And I don't know how, but just as the waters of the Red Sea parted for Moses to pass through, this angry mob parted for Jesus to pass through. His hometown wanted to kill him, but there's a spiritual reason why they weren't able to. Even though Jesus came to die, there was a preordained time for him to die, and this was not it. No, he would die but three years later during the Passover, but it was not yet part of God's plan for him to die, being thrown off a cliff at Nazareth. And however it happened, Jesus is able to slip away. And he headed down to the Sea of Galilee, 18 miles away. And he bases his ministry in a town called Capernaum instead of Nazareth. We can learn one more thing from the response of the people in Jesus' home synagogue. And this is a word for each of us this morning. You will either accept or respond or receive Jesus, or you will reject Jesus. But you cannot ignore Jesus Christ. You cannot ignore him, my friend. You either, you either receive him or you reject him. You cannot ignore him. And the truth of God, this truth, it may make you mad. I hope it does. Because the truth of God, when it makes you mad, that making you mad, that conviction is what happens before the Spirit of God does a work to set you free. You may not like what you've heard today, but I got news. My job is just to deliver the message. I'm just the mailman, if you will. It's your job to decide what you're going to do with it. And when you hear the word of God, it will usually make you mad or it might make you glad depending on the condition of your heart. 
And in a moment, we're going to give an invitation. And it's your job right now to ask God, Lord, what are you trying to say to me today? And here's this. If you have not responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the answer is obvious. God is saying, my friend, this is the age of grace. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to do good enough. You don't have to clean up enough to earn salvation. It's a gift. It's a gift. Just receive it. Well, there might be others of you who are really suffering from a broken heart. And right now, Jesus is saying, I know what you're feeling. I understand the pain. I know what it feels like to be rejected. Even the ones that I grew up with in my hometown rejected me. I know how you feel, every last bit of it. And Jesus tells you, I can repair that broken heart. I can. You may think that nobody cares about it, but I do. And best of all, he says, I can fix that broken heart. Just give me all the pieces. And some of us, nice, religious, long-time Christians, oh, we had better change our attitudes about the kind of people we start loving and accepting. As a part of the body of Christ, we need to be on the same mission that Jesus is on. We need to stand up for and help those who are weak and hurting. There was a pastor in Germany whose name is Martin Neimoller. He survived the, the Daku uh, concentration camp during World War II. He once said this, In Germany, they came first for the communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't communist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Catholics, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't Catholic. I was a Protestant. And then they came for me. And by that time, there was no one left to speak up. Let's be the voices of Christ, friends. Let's proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the poor, to the weak, to the blind, to the oppressed. Let's do that. Let's be the arms of Christ who reach out to those who are hurting. Thank you for tuning in to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church Divine, located at 308 West Hondo Avenue in Divine, Texas. We invite you to be our guests at our 8.30 a.m. or 11 a.m. services each Sunday. You can find more information about First Baptist Church Divine at www.fbcdivine.org where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you.